Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series this week, Easter According to the Gospel of John. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19, verses 31 to 37, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Fulfilling Scripture in Death. It's a strange idea to some that after he died that the dead body of Jesus would still be fulfilling Scripture. But it's so. And that reminds us that there is not one detail about the life and the sufferings and the death of Jesus that was left to chance. Now, that shouldn't shock us. I mean, for one, God is sovereign over everything. And also, the events surrounding Jesus were planned by the Father before this world came to be. Now, it's often the case when armies go to war that all manner of unexpected events do take place. No one ever says everything went according to plan. I mean, along the way, there are lots of unplanned events. Now, not so with the war that the Father and the Son waged against sin and against Satan and for the redemption of a people of God. Yeah, everything went according to plan. And that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't pay an awful price for the final victory of our souls. So let's read our scripture, John 19, 31 to 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other that had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So let's, as we begin, rehearse the events surrounding Calvary. In one traumatic 24-hour period, Jesus had been arrested, gone through six successive trials where he'd been mocked and spit upon and slapped in the face and beaten. In the middle of these trials, false witnesses filled the courtroom with lies. And finally, even after being pronounced not guilty by Pilate, a howling mob demanded his crucifixion nonetheless. Then he was whipped so severely that all the flesh and sinews were torn from his back and you could count his bones. He was then forced to carry his cross through Jerusalem, but he stumbled and fell, and a man, Simon of Cyrene, carried his cross, and there on a place called Golgotha, or Calvary, he was nailed to a cross between two criminals. And there, with horrible suffering, he hung for six to seven hours, paying for the sins of the world. So much transpired during those hours, more than John mentioned in his book. I mean, for one, he was repeatedly mocked by the religious leaders. If you're the Christ, come down from the cross. And for three of those hours, there descended on the entire land darkness. And in the darkness, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, these are dreadful hours, hours in which the the suffering of Christ can be expressed in four different forms. You know, first, there's the actual physical pain in which the victim was so placed on a cross that unless you lifted your you know, body by your legs, aggravated by the nails driven through the heels, you couldn't breathe. It seems almost impossible to fathom. And second, there was the pain of bearing our sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. The thorough revulsion of one who had never sinned 
to sense the weight and horror of the sins of his people was dark and ugly and degrading and shameful. Third, there was that pain of abandonment in which he was abandoned by his own disciples, but then ultimately abandoned by God himself. He who knew only intimacy with the Father would hang there abandoned. And finally, there was the pain of bearing the wrath of the Father. 1 John 4, 7, God sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so propitiation simply means that that Christ became a wrath-bearing sacrifice. I mean, imagine for a moment that when Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he means for so long, for six hours, hour after suffering hour, the Father pours out onto the Son the rightful punishment that was due us for our sins. Wave after terrifying waves of wrath fell on him like pent-up fury. Finally, as John tells us, that he was given a branch of hyssop, some sour wine which he drank, and then he said is finished, indicating that he had completed the work of our redemption, that the awful penalty of sin was paid for, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So let's go to our text. John begins with the words, it was the day of preparation. So Jesus died on a Friday, and the next day would be the Sabbath, which, as we know, is the Jewish day of rest. But this Sabbath, it's the Sabbath of Passover. It's a special Sabbath called a high day. It's the Sabbath of the Passover. Leviticus 23, 9 to 11 explains what would happen on this day. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So the day of preparation was the day in which preparations were being made for this important wave offering in which all Israel was to participate. Then on Sabbath, that was the next day, no work of preparation was to be done, and they were to await Sunday of the wave offering. The wave offering is an offering of the first fruits of the harvest. And by the way, it's so important. We shouldn't pass this by. Jesus was raised from the dead on the day in which first fruits are offered up to God, waved before the Lord. See, the biblical writers make much of that for Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of the resurrection of the just at the end of the age. He is the first resurrection of a host or a harvest of resurrections which are to follow. And and that forms such an important background. See, the Roman practice and the Jewish practice were very different when it came to crucifixion. The Romans, if it were left up to them, would simply allow the bodies of the crucified people to be left on the cross where they would rot and they'd be eaten by vultures. And so, If it had been left up to the Romans, that's what would have occurred to Jesus. But the Jewish custom demanded a very different treatment, and that's because Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23 says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So we can see there's a problem. It's important for Jesus to die on the day of preparation and not on the Sabbath or even after that on the offering of the first fruits to God. He was to be dead and buried before the sun sets on Friday. And so the religious leaders have to do business with Pilate again. We have religious reasons, they would have said. You know, that man has to be dead before the sun sets. 
and, and the man needs to be off the cross before the sun sets. If not, our entire land is going to be defiled. You know, by now it becomes quite clear that Pilate, well, he's done fighting with these people. So he gives orders that it should be so. Now, according to John, when Jesus died, the, the two criminals at either side, well, they were still alive. And so the Roman soldiers did what they did in such occasions. They simply took sledgehammers and they smashed them up against the legs of the two men and broke their legs, leaving those men unable to lift their bodies up so that they could breathe. You know, the, the cruel nature of crucifixion is, you know, that the body is so stretched out on a cross. A person would have to hoist oneself up, you know, from one's feet and legs to be able to just to get a breath. So once their legs are broken, they would have suffocated in a matter of minutes, but it would have been an agonizing way to die. And it seems that the soldiers went to work, you know, one on one side of Jesus and the other on the other, so that when they come to Jesus in the middle, they realize that, well, he's already dead. And it seems that the double flogging that they did had resulted in an early death. So much blood loss, so much abuse had resulted in the fact that he had died before the men on either side. But to make sure, one soldier hurls a spear into his side and blood and water drains out. You know, I found a number of explanations as to this phenomenon and, you know, my non-medical background, but it, it seems likely that when a chest has been severely injured, hemorrhagic fluid to up to two liters gathers between the lining of the rib cage and that of the lung. It then separates and a clear serum forms at the top and a deep red layer of blood forms at the bottom. And so that is an indication that death has already occurred. And so when the body of Jesus is penetrated, as it was in this case by a Roman spear, a Roman would expertly aim that spear and both layers would flow out. In other words, the water and the blood indicates to that Roman that death has already occurred sometime before this event. John simply says that he was there when that happened and that he had seen overwhelming evidence that Jesus truly was dead. This month on Back to the Bible Canada, we express gratitude to our monthly partners and earnestly celebrate all those who privilege this ministry with their gracious support every month. Your consistent gift ensures Bible teaching and engagement resources continue to be offered through a wide variety of mediums across Canada and around the globe. We invite you to join our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program. And in so doing, you'll not only help to sustain and grow this ministry, but in appreciation each year, you'll receive our annual scripture calendar, a copy of an annual CD series, and an exclusive 15% discount on all of our Bible teaching and engagement resources. For more information on becoming an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner or to join, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Everything I've said up to this point in time is simply the indication that Jesus was dead. It will do no good at all to argue, as some have, that, you know, perhaps Jesus wasn't dead, that the Romans had gotten it wrong. Indeed, the men who crucified were quite good at this thing. They would forgo the hard sledgehammer work of breaking Jesus' leg bones if they ascertained that death had occurred. 
But again, that's just the background. And it may sound simply like an incidental thing. I mean, why even include it? And the answer for John is profound. All day long, as Jesus has been tried and then crucified, Scripture was being fulfilled. And here again, John's trained eyes see two Scriptures being fulfilled. The first one comes from Psalm 34, 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Point simple. John points out that even while Jesus suffered under the wrath of the Father, he didn't stop being the object of the Father's delight. And that's what John sees by the fact that his bones are not broken. He sees Jesus always being the object of the Father's love. The sacrifice of Jesus, says John, is accepted. It's highly honored. It's valued by the Father. He looks upon the suffering of his Son, and he makes a statement. The Father says, I esteem and I cherish and I prize this act of crucifixion. So why is that important? Well, it's very important for for the reason why we know that we can be forgiven at the cross. See, when we place our trust in the cross, we trust that which the Father values. Oh, I wish all of us would treasure the cross as much as the Father does. Then John points out a second prophecy, and this prophecy has become quite dear to me personally. You know, some time ago when I was visiting Israel, I was sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking the old city of Jerusalem, and I was with a Jewish guide. He's a very kind and gentle man, and as we looked out at the city, he pointed out to me the gates of the city and the Golden Gate, which is entirely bricked up. He told me that the rabbis taught that this gate would be the gate the Messiah would enter to recapture the city, and that the Muslims had bricked it up to to prevent that from happening. Well, we both laughed. I mean, what a weak Messiah it would be if a few bricks would stop him. And then I asked the question, why do the rabbis teach that this is the gate the Messiah enters? And my guide said he didn't know. In a moment of inspiration, I said, you know, I know exactly where the Messiah will return. And I could see the look in my guide's face wondering, you know, if I was one of these crazies who visited Jerusalem, but I was undaunted. I said, when the Messiah returns, he's going to return to the very place that we are seated right now. I said, it's in the Bible. And he said, where? I said, it's in Zechariah 14, in which Zechariah opens that chapter with the words, behold, the day is coming. That day, as all readers of the Bible acknowledge, that's the day of the Lord. That's when the Messiah returns. And then I read Zechariah 14, verse 4 to him. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. My guide said, well, that's very interesting. And I said, oh, there's a lot more. Zechariah even tells us who the Messiah is. And then I read Zechariah 12, verse 10. I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. I said, look, my dear friend, what if the Messiah has a pierced side and then pierced hands and feet? And he said, well, in that case, I guess I'd believe. But consider it, 500 years before Christ, Zechariah wrote those very words, although I'm sure He probably didn't have even the faintest idea of what he was writing. And then 500 years later, a Roman soldier took a spear and hurled it at the dead body of Jesus on the cross, even though he didn't know what he was doing. But by doing that, he placed on Jesus' body the evidence of God that this was his Messiah, the Savior of the world. You know, years later, John would write about it again. 
in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And so the sign of the pierced side of Jesus is the marker. I've heard of people during an autopsy or in rediscovering someone who's been lost from them for years have identified that person by a marking on the body. This is God's marker. So you can identify his man. This is the Lord's Savior. Look at the end of the Gospel of John, John 20, 31. John writes, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's still one more thing we need to consider. You know, there have been many who, while they acknowledge that, you know, the blood and the water flowed from Jesus' side, that it's a fulfillment of prophecy and one of the marks that identify him, but they also see a symbolism here. One of the great Bible teachers of the past, John Chrysostom, in the fifth century, He believed that the water was symbolic of baptism and the blood was symbolic of the Lord's table, the two sacraments that have come to us through the death of Christ. We are, after all, baptized in the death of Jesus. And when we drink the cup, we are reminded of his death until he returns again. And Chrysostom thought that Jesus' death was verified by water and blood, that his death, therefore, sanctions these two ordinances of the church and empowers them. Now, whatever you think of that, You know that our text doesn't say that, but we do know that there is a biblical thought here that resonates with many believers. I mean, consider two hymns that make use of this moment. The first is a hymn by Fanny Crosby, and it's titled, Near the Cross. Crosby wrote, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. You know, Crosby thought that the flow from Jesus' side was a life-giving grace that comes from the death of our Savior. It might also be that Crosby is putting together something from the Old Testament, Exodus 17. You know, in that case, Israel, having left Egypt, had entered into the wilderness and there was no water. Well, one thing led to another, and soon the leaders of Israel are quarreling with Moses. You know, they say to him, why did you bring us out to this wilderness so that we and our livestock would die of thirst in this barren place? So there at Horeb was a rock, And God told Moses to strike the rock with his staff, and out of the rock comes water to drink. And Exodus says that was a testing of God in which Israel was asking the question, is God among us or not? But the water that came from the rock gave life to Israel, and surely that's what Fanny Crosby gave us in her song. The flow from Jesus' side, she thought, was like the flow from the rock in the wilderness. It indicated that God is indeed among us, and that out of Jesus' side comes a flow that's life-giving. Well, it's not just Chrysostom and Fanny Crosby that thought of that. Many of you will remember the very famous hymn by Augustus' top lady. It's entitled Rock of Ages. The first verse in that hymn is as follows. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. That is, for Top Lady, the water and the blood are symbolic of the effects of Christ's atonement. That is, we're forgiven of our sins. We're also saved from the power of sin that condemns us to eternal death. This flowed from Jesus' side. Now, all of this symbolism that people have thought of, is this all valid? Well, I for myself think it is. For John himself, the author of the Gospel of John, has also written three letters. And in 1 John 5, verse 6, he writes, 
This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And here it does seem that the water is our baptism, and the blood signifies his atoning death. So it seems to me that Chrysostom was saying more than we give him credit for. He was putting together a number of thoughts and helping us to see that in the death of Jesus comes another sign that God has given us salvation. Now then, Jesus is our Passover lamb. The power of death and slavery to sin has been broken in his death. The water and the blood prove that our Passover lamb has truly died, put to death. And this proves that scripture has been fulfilled, and it also proves that we are now set free from the curse of sin. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And as John wrote, he who saw it bore witness that this is indeed what happened on that day. John says, my testimony about that is true. Indeed it is. Thanks, John, for your message. Let me ask you this. Is it important or critical at all the idea that everything that took place during the crucifixion was a fulfillment of Scripture? Well, I think it is in a number of ways. I mean, the easiest way is, you know, for us to think about it in terms of encouraging us in our faith to know that these weren't unplanned events, but that they were prophesied hundreds of years beforehand and were perfectly fulfilled. I mean, that's a wonderful uh, just uh, encouragement to our own faith, and it's also a wonderful tool to share the gospel with others, you know, to say that God did things exactly according to plan. But also, it does give us a perspective on Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus did everything, I mean, not off the cuff or as they, you know, somehow turned out and he made the best of things. Isn't it interesting to see Jesus who is perfectly in control who obeys the Father in everything, even to the point of death and to the details in that death. What does that do for us? Well, I think what it does for us is it encourages us not only to trust in Jesus more, but it also encourages us to be obedient like Jesus, to obey the Father fully in everything, because that's what our Lord and Savior actually did. And that's a wonderful lesson for us to remember, especially at Easter time. Jesus did these things according to the set, determined will of God. What an example to us. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Easter, according to the Gospel of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, it's Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Neufeld available on this station. But we know that there are times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John. But also take the opportunity to learn how to subscribe for our ministry podcasts, the YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is as widely available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information, call us at one 800 
663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.